It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 157, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. David Greenberg of Abundant Acres Farm raises about five acres of vegetables with his wife, Jen, in rural Nova Scotia, about an hour from Halifax. With four full-time employees, in addition to David and Jen, Abundant Acres focuses on high-value crops while also growing a bit of everything for their diversified market streams. David takes a deep dive into the cooperative, direct-to-consumer marketing arrangement that Abundant Acres has with a few select food producers in Halifax, including how they use that storefront to host their free choice CSA. And David digs into how he and Jen manage inventory and supply for the off-farm free choice CSA, including everything from record keeping to how that informs their planting choices. Abundant Acres uses several different production systems, including tarped, deep compost fields for high-value crop production, a tractor-based row crop and plastic culture vegetables in rotation, mobile caterpillar tunnels, and heated greenhouse space. We take an especially in-depth look at the investment and returns on the deep compost system and discuss the engineering behind the mobile caterpillar tunnels, and we also get some insights into the lessons learned in the plastic culture system. Now, according to David, the farm succeeds in large part because of its reliance on radical delegation to employees. We discuss how David and Jen set expectations, guide their workers, and give and get feedback to improve performance so that they can rely on employees to take leadership and responsibility for the production on the farm. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is generously supported by Local Food Marketplace, helping farms and food hubs around North America implement easy-to-use online ordering systems that integrate with a full management system for order packing, invoicing, and payment processing. Contact localfoodmarketplace.com to learn more. And by Haas Tools. Haas Tools is the complete solution for all your market farming tools and supplies. From wheel hose, precision seeders, heavy-duty seed trays, drip irrigation, and organic pest control, they have got you covered. Get free shipping and outstanding customer service at HaasTools.com. And by Vermont Compost Company. Founded by organic crop-growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high-quality compost and compost-based Living Soil Mixes for Certified Organic Plant Production, VermontCompost.com. David Greenberg, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. So glad you could join us today. I'd like to start off by having you tell us about Abundant Acres. Where are you guys located? How much are you doing? What are you doing? How are you selling your produce? All right. Well, we're located in rural Nova Scotia, Canada. So we're on the Atlantic coast on a body of water called the Bay of Fundy, home of the largest, highest tides in the world. We're about an hour from the capital city of Halifax, which is a smallish city of about 300,000 people. Uh, we farm on five to eight acres a year, uh, depending on how much wholesaling we do and just you know where we feel markets are going. And we usually have four full-time employees, a handful of part-time employees, and my wife, Jennifer, and I farm together. This is uh, We're going into our my 22nd year of farming and we do mixed vegetables with an emphasis on greenhouse crops high value crops and then we also just grow a bit of everything so i've been to halifax i think it was back in 2012 but of course it was in the middle of the winter because that's when i travel everywhere for farming conferences but i have the impression that even though you're on 43 degrees latitude same as madison wisconsin that that you guys are, are not nearly as warm there in the summertime, even though you might be as cold in the wintertime. Yeah, no, it's, it's kind of a damp, clammy maritime climate. So I think degree days-wise, correct me if I'm wrong, I think, I think this is right, but 
somewhere like Madison would probably be, I'm guessing something like 4,000 degree days for like corn growing days. That feels like the sort of thing I should know off the top of my head. And I just have no idea. I think it's something like you might be even 5,000 degree days in the Midwest. And we're in a hot spot in Nova Scotia and we're at about 2,300. Okay. So, you know, the, the heat units are not there. Um, and yet we can grow peaches outside and they don't, you know, we're, we're zone six. So, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those maritime climates where, you know, we grow eggplants outside. They just probably yield half as much as they would in a place like Madison or Pennsylvania or something like that. And you just don't get quite as cold in the wintertime because, of course, you've got the Bay of Fundy and the whole Atlantic Ocean kind of right there. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's just that thermal flywheel thing is going on. And I love it. I, I, I grew up outside of Boston where it's hot and muggy and you know, typical New England weather. And the first time I came up here, I saw a farmer uh, sweating like crazy. It was about 80 degrees out and he had jeans on and no shirt. And I said, Ooh, is this hot for you? It's a hot day. And he goes, Oh, this is the worst day we've had all summer. And it was mid August. And I thought, Oh man, <laughs> yeah, they've just been in high nineties in Boston day after day. And I come up here and I think, Oh, I found paradise. I've never quite gotten used to the heat in the Midwest after growing up in the Pacific Northwest. So I, I know kind of the opposite of what you're talking about. There. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've become so soft now when I go back home in the summer, if I ever do travel in the summer, I'm just flabbergasted by the heat. So. <laughs> so how are you guys marketing your produce? That, that five, and, and that five to eight acres of production sounds like a lot of variation from year to year. Part of that is we're just increasing our yields per acre. So I think we're actually settling at about five acres of production. Uh, we market through a CSA that we hope to get up to 200 shares this year. We usually vacillate around 180 to 200 shares. And then we do a big city farmer's market. We wholesale to a university student union that does a 100 plus CSA, and we're one of their main suppliers. We sell to a few stores and other farmers that resell to restaurants, just a few wholesale accounts, a few restaurants buy from us, but it's not a focus. And then uh, we do our CSA distribution at a project we call the warehouse market, where we have a grass-based, pasture-raised meat producer, a sustainable seafood distributor, and us all share a retail space that we sell at three days a week in uh, the north end of town. And that's been really successful. We started that last year. So we do free choice CSA and retail sales concurrently three days in a row. Wow. That's been, a, that's been a really big success for us. What a great idea for a partnership to pull in those other producers and and have that available on kind of a, a piece-by-piece basis in the, in the way that I think makes more sense with something like meat, rather than trying to have the meat CSA or something like that. That's right. And he, he does do custom orders. So he's bringing in probably 100 customers a week. The seafood distributor has a catch of the week program with 200 people. And a a lot of those are coming through the warehouse. She does have some other distribution spots. But basically, we're bringing in our CSA clientele who are then buying meat and fish. And then the meat and fish people are buying our veggies. It's been this amazing synergy. Plus, we can pay someone to help us on Thursday, which is our main distribution day. And then also watch the shop Friday and Saturday, and we're splitting her wages among the three producers and splitting the rent. So we, we found out that the space is an old bean sprout factory, 
that uh, has walk-in freezers and walk-in coolers and, you know, drained concrete floors and all that and a big garage door. And there's lots of parking. It's on a, a quiet residential street, a few blocks from a trendy shopping area. And so it's just, we're, we're, some weeks we're tripling our sales that we do at the big city farmer's market there. So in addition to having the free choice CSA there, you guys are also selling vegetables to people who come in from the meat and the seafood customer perspective. That's right. And we also have uh, a lot of customers who simply just don't want a CSA and they're very loyal. They'll come year round, they'll buy a lot of stuff every week and they just don't on a CSA. And those are actually some of our best customers. We have this one customer, they're paleo diet followers, and they spend probably 50 to to $100 a week on vegetables, plus another 100 to $200 a week on protein. So it's, it's not unusual for them to drop $300 a week on us at the market. And they have no interest in signing up for any kind of program. So they're just, you know, awesome farmer's market customers, basically. Right. And of course, because you're doing this in such a small market setting, you really are able to choose the people that you're partnering with. So you've got, you've got a meat producer and a seafood wholesaler who, who match your food ethic. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, that's a really big issue, especially with meat. I find that the, the quality, you know, there's pasteurized and there's pasteurized and the person that we're teamed up with is sort of the, the most accomplished grazer in our region and um and his quality is just unbelievable and same with the seafood so it's it's really nice and 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 then we also bring in the best whole grain bakery that we love the most we bring her products in we bring beautiful flower bouquets specialty mushrooms ferments you know we kind of just built we curated our own farmer's market to have all our favorite products and um so far it's been a big success and and when you say you've curated your own farmer's market, have you done that along with the seafood partner and the meat partner? Or is that really something that has been an abundant acres project to say, let's bring in the flowers and let's bring in the bread? The flowers and the bread and all that is us, is abundant acres. Um, the seafood person brought us in because she was renting the space as her headquarters. But she has her office spaces upstairs and she uses the walk-in cooler. And then... She brought us in just as she was signing the lease for the building. And then the meat guy has actually had a, the, the person who owns the building has been his client for 20 years. So the owner of the building wanted the meat person to come in. And then we brought in the bread and the flowers and eggs and, you know, just a few other things. And we rent, Abundant Acres rents the whole downstairs market space. And then we sublet it to the other vendors. And, and we, we keep the money. We do one kill. We just use a, a square POS system. And we just have different button, buttons for each uh, vendor's product. Everyone just brings their stuff. They don't have to count inventory, nothing like that. We just sell a piece of fish. I just press the fish button, total that, press the meat button, press the produce button. And then the square system keeps track of it all. And then once a month, the fish wholesalers, aficionado, keep track of the money and write us a check once a month. How long have you been doing this? We started the first week of June last year, and we're going year-round now. And, yeah. Great. Cool. Great. You know, and of course, but, but the hardest thing about replicating that would be finding a retail space in a desirable neighborhood that's affordable. That's right. the sort of secret ingredient to that. 
And especially because you're not using that retail space seven days a week. You know, you're not, it's not like you're, you're really maximizing your utilization of those dollars per square foot. No, and we could go seven days a week. We totally could. I, I think, I think it's a possibility that we increase our days right now. The cost benefit isn't there just for the management of it and keeping produce there. Uh, sometimes we have to do a resupply in on Friday morning. So as we're selling on Thursday, I'll be calling or texting the crew, telling them, you know, pick more bunch and carrots, get more spinach together, do this, do that. And then uh, I'll drive home on Thursday or whoever, or my wife will drive home. And then some, one of us will have to go back in on Friday. Um, you know, it's a huge responsibility doing multi-day marketing. And if the customers come and there isn't something there, and you've, you know, you've just lost a customer. So keeping it going multiple days is not a decision to be taken lightly. And you said that you're doing this as a year-round market. Does that mean that you're doing year-round vegetable production? We are. We, we have storage crops. Uh, this year, we're buying in some storage crops. There's a bunch of larger-scale certified organic producers that we're uh, picking stuff up from, being very transparent about it. But mostly, we grow in stuff. And then we do, we have greenhouses with greens in them and we're doing uh, pea shoots. So, um, yeah. And then there's actually, there's an aquaponics array in the warehouse that the owner of the building is doing a rainbow trout and salad green system grow up. And then most of that gets cut and carried 20 feet into a bin and sold. So there's also that too. Very cool. Very cool. So tell me just, I mean, to, to kind of set the market context then, tell me a little bit about more about Halifax. I, mean, I think it's about 300,000 people and you've got a university yeah. there. Yeah, so there's several universities. There's about 60,000 undergrads in the town. And there's a military base and regional hospital. You know, just the, the things you'd expect in a small capital city. Uh, Halifax has a very well-developed farmer's market culture and not a very well-developed CFA culture. So there's several farmer's markets and not that many CSAs. There's one really big year-round CSA with, I think, about 800 shares. And then we're the second biggest in the town at only you know 200 shares top. So it's, it's, I think there's a lot of room there. Uh, markets, I'd say, generally are struggling, like I've heard so many other places in North America, that farmers market sales are stagnant or going down, and certainly CSA signups are harder to come by than they used to. So, definitely, uh, it's not like it was four or five years ago. It seems like just the buzz of local food seems to have dimmed, and you know the really committed, great customers are still there, but it doesn't seem to be as trendy to have a CSA box or go to farmers market as it was a little while ago. I mean, do you see that in your interviews a lot now? Yeah, we're hearing that a lot. I, I mean, you know, it, of course, we, we hear that and we hear that, we hear that. And then it, it is kind of funny. There are some folks that I talk to who are like, it's, you know, the market's never been better for us. And I think it varies so much according to the geography, kind of where you're at in that, maybe in the, in the, the peak of enthusiasm when it comes to any given trend. You know, where where maybe if you're in a in a city where it hasn't been as big of a deal, that maybe you're still kind of riding the upswing. And I was particularly struck. And this has been this has been a number of interviews ago uh, with ta- when I talked with Corinna Bench. Um, you know, I think in in Ohio, 
And she was saying how for them, the CSA is actually really strong, but they're really adopting a lot of the marketing approaches, you know, in terms of selling those CSA shares and even thinking about how to get people to renew their CSA shares that you might see in the more conventional food scene, you know, rather than kind of taking the, the completely alternative route with the marketing. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, we've, we've, I mean, for us, we found the more choice we give, the more retention we have yep. and the more face-to-face contact. So our, our two main things we're doing that we didn't always prioritize is that my wife and I attend almost every Thursday distribution and that people know on Thursday it's our main, sort of we tell people they can pick up their CSA shares on Friday or Saturday, but Thursday is the main day. So the farmers will be there and everything was harvested fresh. On Friday, some of the stuff you know, it'll be left over from Thursday. But on Thursday, we're rolling in. We're there. Come and get it. And um, people respond to that so strongly. You know, just that eye-to-eye contact and full choice. So we'll do a, a large share. It's usually nine items. A small share is six or seven items. And it's just all laid out farmer's market style. And you just take whatever items you want. Except for certain things we might put up. You know, early cherry tomatoes, there might be a limit on. But by and large, you take whatever you want. And you never take something you don't want. I feel like there's a real tension there with the the face-to-face contact and the choice element with the CSA because you know really we're being asked to do a lot more as farmers. I mean that face-to-face time that comes at a cost because you're not on the farm. You know, you're you're now standing there, you're selling things, you're being a merchant instead of being back home getting the weeds killed. And I feel like the same thing to some degree with the choice. You know, you're you're there's this ever growing pressure to provide more and more and more and more and more. We always found on, on our farm that for the CSA, like having really early tomatoes or really early cucumbers, we didn't really get anything out of that. You know, a lot of times we'd increase the choice and people go, Oh, that's great. But it wasn't like we got more for having an early tomato the way that you might at farmer's market with a higher price for that first tomato of the season. And I found that to be kind of a frustrating dynamic with the CSA. It is true. I think that's kind of a weak point of CSA in general, is that you're not getting that direct market response. Um, for us, we're doing a lot of farmer's market sales while we're distributing the CSA. And the CSA has created a buzz for us in this alternative location on a quiet residential street. So people are jogging by this little street and they see, you know, 30 or 40 people picking up their CSA shares and talking and laughing and having a great time. And they go, what's going on in there? And they come into our building. So for us, I, I sort of see the CSA distribution as this really great sort of adjunct to our alternative farmer's market sales thing. And for us, it seems to pencil out really well. You know, there's many CSA days where we're selling $6,000 of product in a day in a really small market on a fairly small farm, you know, it, it feels like it, it, it's worth our time compared to a farmer's market where a really, really good farmer's market is three to 4,000 is about our top sales and market. I really like that, that idea of that synchronicity between the, you know, the CSA sales being sort of a core that drives some of your other marketing efforts. It is. And then, and then what we do too, is because we're doing free choice at the end, we might be out of some items. Like let's say we don't have salad mix left. We have lots of spinach and people are coming in at the end of our distribution day 
and I'll say things like, okay, uh, spinach is two for one, two for one. And I'll blow out a lot of stuff and people have less choice, but they have a perception of great value. I would never two for one things that I could sell easily the next day necessarily, but I'm like, oh, I have, we just way over harvested spinach this week. And so I'll give two for one spinaches and people are just delighted. And to me, it seems like, you know, there's always that certain percentage of stuff that isn't going to sell at any market where there's choice. And we whittle that down to a very small amount and then we give the rest away. So we have almost no waste. Like we probably waste 30 or 40 pounds of produce a week on our farm. I know. I love that. Tell me more about how the free choice CSA system works for you guys. Uh, we, we set up, uh, I found that the, the larger the bins, the better so that we can put lots of stuff out so that we don't run out of product in the middle of a rush. So we use, uh, these ship to shore fish totes that, um, sort of ubiquitous on the Atlantic coast of Canada. It's like a gray plastic fish tote that's about 18 inches, 20 inches wide, and about three feet long, about a foot deep. So we set those up at an angle, and we fill them with every different thing we have, and we just have signs saying what it is and if there's a limit on it or how much an item is. So like we might do something like if we have leaks that are bunched, we'll say you know one bunch per item, per share. Uh, or if there's cherry tomatoes, we might say one pint max per share. You know, so everyone knows they can only take a pint. They can't take five pints of cherry tomatoes that week. And people just count themselves. We don't check. It's all on our system. And we find it really easy. We um, One thing we had, was we had to really streamline how we manage our inventory. So the way we're doing it now, we might go to a, a, a notepad or something, you know, a tablet thing we might do that but for right now what we do is we have a whiteboard set up by our walk-in cooler we write down each item that we harvest and how much and then we take a picture with our smartphone using a tiny scanner app that allows us to get a, a really clear scan of of the whiteboard so we print that out bring that to market so then first of all when we're setting up it works as an inventory so if you know, if I wasn't in the wash pack room and I can't remember if we harvested fennel or not, I can look at my sheet and know, oh yes, there are, there is some fennel and dig around in the, and find it. So we put everything out, we sell everything. And at the end of the day, we can very quickly just note what is left over. So we'll just, you know, look and say, oh, we brought 20 fennel and 13 or less, bring less next week. So it's just a very streamlined way of doing that. And then we print out all those uh, whiteboards too. And we use that for organic certification as our audit trail to do our harvest records. Pretty straightforward. It, it, it cuts down a lot of data entry. And um, so when doing, you know, when doing a, a free choice CSA, I think it's crucial that you somehow learn how to bring what you need when you need it. You know, and that's true of farmers market too. It's just it's a little more. There's a little more pressure when someone's already paid for it. Right. You're right. Sure you're, you're, you're delivering the goods. Well, and of course, at farmer's market, you've got that other flexibility besides just how much you bring of how much you charge. You know, you can always say, you know, we're limited on cherry tomatoes this week. I'm going to jack the price. Yes, that's right. And, and, and that's a thing, too, where you have to really balance in the CSA system. It's kind of like getting back to what you said about if you bring early tomatoes, are you really getting anything out of it? Is Sometimes in the middle of the harvest season, we're giving a lot of value because each item is so valuable. 
you know, like winter squash, for instance, in a free choice system where people can take all the winter squash they want just per unit, I find in order to not lose my shirt, I have to grow small winter squash. So like we grow so PMR, uh, butternut squash, and I used to grow them at 1.5 foot in row spacing, and I was growing too many large sizes. The value set, unlike farmer's market, you can't, I can't charge by the pound for those winter squash. So I need to crowd things in the row to make my winter squash small enough so I don't lose my shirt on a per item GSA. So, uh, you know, I, there's, you have to do funny things like that. Like with growing uh, fall broccoli, we pack them in, in, the, in, the, in the bed so that we're getting our bed foot income that we need and that we can give these small heads of broccoli that aren't too valuable. With that example, with a free choice CSA, somebody could, you know, if I come to pick up my CSA share and it's, you know, and I'm not a big broccoli fan, then I have the option of getting one smaller head of broccoli or three smaller heads of broccoli. Whereas if you have those big monster heads of broccoli, even if I don't really want a lot of broccoli and I want to want a little bit, I'm stuck just having to take that one big head. That's right. And it's an interesting thing that's happened to us is since we're doing the free choice CSA and we had to sort of downshift the value of our units, we started using that same sort of controlled unit size at farmer's market. And we went, a lot of our prices two years ago were 325 was sort of our base bunch price. And we went to two for five. And what we did is we just shortened up all our bunches. So we, I pretty carefully calculated our revenue per carrot or per kale leaf. And I kept our revenue the same, but just made all the bunches smaller. And now we have these smaller everything. And now almost everything is two for five on our table. And our sales jumped up a lot. So that's been an interesting uh, sort of thing to do. And, you know, like we're doing bunches of hawker eyes. We'll have, you know, golf ball sized hawker eyes. And I'll do a bunch that only has four in it. And if you put those two bunches together and charged $5, people would be like, that is a ridiculous price. There's no way I'm paying $5 for a bunch of turnips. But you have them two for five, $3 each, two for five. And people will buy two bunches and think they're getting the best deal. And we're in a college town where there's lots of uh, undergrads living in uh, apartments with uh, little bar refrigerators. And we kept hearing people saying, I want kale, shard, turnip, and carrots, but I can't fit it all in my fridge or it'll all rot before I eat it. And now they're coming to us and buying these little bunches and just loving it. And we're getting all these people who are like, ah, this works. And uh, that's been a big driver of sales for us market. So it's been interesting for me over the last couple of years since I stopped farming, making the transition to the really sad transition to being a grocery store vegetable chopper, uh, you know, even when I've got a great food co-op. But I think that this is actually something that they do, particularly in the wintertime uh, with the, the, the national produce scene, is that I feel like there's a lot of fluctuation in bunch size. So you don't see the price, like on kale, never really gets jacked up really high like it sometimes does with broccoli on a per-pound basis because kale sold by the bunch. But what'll happen is that in the middle of the winter is that those kale bunches get really tiny, you know, and then as, as spring rolls around and things start ramping up again, they get a lot bigger. And so again, when you kind of talk about that on, on the per, the value per acre idea, 
I think it's interesting. It's an interesting idea to adjust adjust the amount rather than adjusting the price. I like that. Yeah, and it's and what, what, something we heard a lot too is that at farmers market, I think customers feel uneasy when they have a certain amount to spend and they don't know how much their bill is going to be, and they can't quickly do the mental math. Right. And this way, someone will come up to me with a twenty dollar bill in their hand, and they say, "Okay, what eight items am I buying this week?" Yeah, I'm spending twenty dollars on produce, and they go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Thank you. Here's your twenty. And and it's like we're really turning through our customers faster at market too. And people just feel super transparent. We have everything very clearly labeled or as much as possible, and we're just getting a lot of positive feedback for that. So. I'm going to come shop at your store. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. I really like that. So tell me about the production systems that are getting this food to the warehouse market and the farmer's market and, and the CSA. We have, we have multiple production systems. A lot of our high-value, mostly direct-seeded, short-season crops, so you know, quick, quick roots and greens, are grown in an acre-and-a-half, no-till, tarped, deep compost field. So we have 108 beds. 100 feet long by about 42 inch bed tops. There are 60 inches on center and we have full tarp coverage. So we have 18 tarps that cover six beds in uh, three rows. So we have block A, B, and C, 36 beds per block, uh, six, six tarps per covering those beds. We have full sprinkler irrigation. So any crop that's growing has a sprinkler on it. We use Senegar Wobbler XLs. We use four sprinklers per hundred foot run uh, for you know per, per bed. So we're, we're irrigating six beds. We're tarping six beds. We have row cover that can cover six beds, and we're using a lot of compost. I've been thinking about this for years, and then when I read Ben Hartman's excellent book, The Lean Farm, actually I, I think I first heard about it when I heard him on your podcast. It just clicked in my head, and I started doing some. Uh, the math, and I figured out I could put, it was like four inches of this very clean, peat moss-based, weed-free, pH-balanced, awesome compost. I could put four inches down on a bed for 106 bucks. And I did the math, worked out to just over $16,000 to cover all 108 beds, and um, did it. I invested the money. That was in the uh, spring of 2016. And we had an incredible drought in 2016. We ran out of water for six weeks. Mm. And I think that compost paid for itself that first year. And we also just did away with our weeds. So we you know, just covered over all that chickweed in our salad mix. And suddenly, what cultivation we did have to do was three times easier. Our yields expanded, doubled our yields. Everything just got easy and awesome. And now we're, we're just really sold on that production system for those particular crops. We do a lot of things like we'll, you know, we'll have a piece of ground that has some sort of weed problem. Chickweed is a big one for us. And, um, you know, we'll do things like, well, the chickweed will come up through last year's compost. So we'll, we'll, we'll tarp, we'll take the tarp off, we'll let the chickweed start germinating, we'll flame it, then we'll put more compost down, and then we'll feed immediately. And we're just really learning how to use the tarp and the flaming and the deep compost to pretty much eliminate weeding in those hard to manage crops. So I think uh, in 2016, 
we did over a hundred thousand dollars sales on that acre and a half with no greenhouses, just, just all outdoor crops. And we spent about twenty thousand dollars on compost, which is a lot for sure. But we were able to grow things like spinach and arugula through a drought, and we spent less than five percent of our labor on weeding, and our yields went way up, and our crop quality went way up, and we were plagued with a. Uh, you know, soil-borne funguses killing our uh, spinach when it's in the cotyledon stage, mm-hmm. and that stopped. And suddenly, we're growing beautiful spinach this summer, just killing it on spinach. So now, like last year, we spent about five thousand dollars to compost on that field. And of course, the big question is: you know, Are we going to get too much phosphorus or other, you know, less soluble nutrients? So far, the only thing that's getting high is potassium. So I'm going to have to figure that out as we go into the system longer. So that's one system we have. One thing that I think is interesting about what you're talking about there is that when you're looking at the expenses there, what you're doing is you're you're trading input expenses for labor expenses because you're really using that compost as a weed control tool. And of course, if you're increasing your yields on a per square foot basis, you're probably you're probably cutting down your labor costs on a per unit harvested basis. You know, so you're kind of trading that that input cost for labor costs. I'm curious, where are you getting your compost? Is that something you're making yourself? Is that something you're buying in from a local producer? Yeah, we, we, I, I've always loved making compost, and I still make a lot of it myself. But we decided, you know, reading books like The Market Gardener and just thinking about it and sort of, okay, I'm, I, I surrender. I can't make weed-free compost that's super consistent. So we started buying it in from a peat moth manufacturer. So there's a peat bog about 45 minutes from us that feds cows and sheep on peat moss and then turns that into compost, adds lime until it's pH balanced and sells it. And it's expensive. It's uh, delivered. It's almost $40 a cubic yard. And it's perfectly weed-free. It's super fluffy. You can direct seed into it and there's no crusting. Of course, it holds moisture beautifully. And being peat-based, it lasts. So we'll put four inches down and 12 months later, there's probably an inch and a half to two inches of it still sitting there on the surface of the soil. Because that peat's already a really, it's a, what's the right term for it? It's, it's humus already, right? It's, the, it's a completely finished, stable organic matter. And it's like, it's so stable. It's almost like, I say it's like a fossil carbon. You know, it's, it's almost like a fossil fuel. And obviously it's debatable how sustainable it is, but here in Nova Scotia, about 20% of Nova Scotia's land mass is peat bog. And uh, there's a lot of peat here. So we, we really love it. It just does everything we need in a way that seems to be very cost effective. And, you know, you were saying we're substituting input costs for labor. That's one of those things where it's one thing if you could even have that labor. But for us, our crew is busy all the time harvesting and planting and marketing. And as every vegetable farmer knows, there's a time where you have to get weeding done. If you can't get it done on time, it's not even that hourly labor cost. It just doesn't get done. Right. And now you have a weedy mess. And now you have a labor problem of harvesting cilantro that's overrun with whatever, some tangly weed, and you can't get your harvest done on time now. You're sunk. The whole thing just falls apart. And um, yeah, so I, I, I'm really excited about that system. And then using the full tarp coverage has been interesting. It costs us uh, $6,500 to buy 18 tarps and enough sandbags to hold them down. So now instead of dragging tarps here and there and playing this sort of jigsaw puzzle, on our crop plan, we just, every block of six beds 
we have it so that either the block is all things that mature at the same or like if there's something like arugula, salad mix, spinach, and then carrots and beets, we'll put the carrots and beets to one end and we'll pull the tarp away from that end. And then as the quicker crops mature, we just roll the tarp across the quicker crops. And then once the carrots and beets are done, we just flip the tarp over the, those last two beds. And what that does is we never, ever have weeds maturing, waiting to be taken care of. Just, you know, a bed is done, it gets flail mode, tarped immediately. And then our turnaround gets way faster. We're, you know, double and triple cropping everything. And we un- we uncover that tarped bed and we just have this crumbly, black, weed-free surface that we just, you know, ready to plant. Unless we are trying to flush out weeds and we'll untarp, wait two weeks, wait for weeds to germinate, flame weed them, and then usually put fresh compost down and plant. And by by using that thing, we've been able to beat pretty much every weed we have, including some nasty things like uh, uh, wild mint and uh, metal and things like that that were in that field. And how are you getting that compost spread in that system? We have a custom tractor that we built out of a zero-turn mower. So it's really light and really maneuverable. And we pull a little cart that carries about a yard and a half of compost with this little cultivating tractor. So we load load the compost with a bucket loader. We have the compost right by the edge of the field. And we can spread we can spread a lot of compost in a hurry with that. This peat based compost is so light and fluffy we shovel it around with snow shovels. So it's wow. it's actually fun and easy to spread it. And uh, one time I timed myself and a really strong, fast employee. I wish I could remember it off the top of my head. It was it was a really large number of bed feet per hour. I won't make it up, but it was kind of astonishing. In a few hours, you can definitely do about 10 beds. So it, it goes by pretty fast. And that's doing a really thick plant, a thick covering. It's like you know, three or four inches. And you said that this production system that you've just described accounts for how many acres of your farm? 1.5. That includes all the perimeters and cross paths and everything. It's it's 108 beds that are on a 60-inch center. Okay. So, you know, and then our paths, we're trying to make our paths more and more narrow as we go. And um, it's interesting, too. I, I have the full sort of toolkit uh, for a BCS, like the power harrow, rotary plow, flail mower, all that stuff. And now we're hardly using our rotary plow, which is an expensive piece of gear. And we're not really using the um, the rotary harrow or the rotary plow. And instead, I changed the wheel spacing on our Kubota that has 13-2 rear wheels. We just brought our wheel spacing in a little bit. So we're at about 59-inch centers. Couldn't quite get 60 inches on it. We're on 59-inch centers, and I'm not broad forking anymore. I'm using just a simple... I, I just custom. I had a friend custom manufacture sort of like a bed shaper tillage unit that's uh, two big discs. They're about 20 inch discs that scoop out the path and reform the shoulder of the raised bed, and then two gangs of uh, S tines, and then two gangs of like rod weeders. They're just like you know, just spring steel that just sort of crumbles through, and then a roller at the back. So I'm able to whip down a bed in about 30 seconds. And 
you know, deeply loosen the soil without inverting the soil profile, crumble and sort of drag through it and then roll the back. And then we're ready to plant really fast. Uh, and so, yeah, I find, you know, we were, we were broad forking. When you're broad forking 108 beds and paying someone to do it by the hour, suddenly a few thousand dollar tool seems pretty cheap. And how often are you doing that with those beds? Uh, before every crop of carrots, for sure. Uh, we've been experimenting with it. Um, every time we do it, we are bringing up some weed seeds, so I don't do it unnecessarily. I'm still learning how much I have to do it, but I'd say about before half the crops we do it. So that's one and a half acres of your production. So you said there's you've got a total of five. How are you doing the other three and a half? I really love our Rainflow 345 mulch layer. It doesn't make a raised bed. Since a lot of our fields are sandy, gravelly loam, we don't want a raised bed. Also, we grow a cover crop in between all our plastic mulch, and the raised bed would greatly complicate the mowing of that. The way our system is, we'll, we'll spade a field under a cover crop, hopefully. So we'll spade under a cover crop, rototill the whole field, and then we'll we have a small manure spreader that we've put a hood on so we can spread homemade compost very quickly. We can, uh, one, one manure spreader load, we'll do a 400-foot row. So we do 400-foot rows on eight-foot centers where we're spreading a layer of compost about three inches thick and about three feet wide. Then we'll till that in with a rototiller, a six-foot rototiller, just kind of lightly till that in at low RPM, just kind of paddle it through the soil. And then we'll lay our mulch over that. Then we end up with, uh, we use five-foot-wide plastic. So we end up with about a 40-inch about a bed top on our plastic, which is nice. Or mowing our cover crops. I used to use standard four-foot plastic, and then I found I couldn't overlap the flail mower onto the plastic enough to get a clean cut. So this way, with a five-foot plastic, we plant our transplants so they're at least six inches from the shoulder of the plastic. And then we plant annual ryegrass and red clover in the spring, work it in with the power harrow. Oh, actually, what we do is we, power, we, we lay our plastic, we power harrow out all the ruts from laying the plastic mulch to get a really smooth surface that will be easy to mow. Then we, let, then we spread our seed and either power harrow it in or, or let the rain work it in. And then when we, as we, as we crop the, the field, we mow it with our 34-inch wide flail mower, two passes, a pass up and down does it. And we end up with this beautiful carpet of red clover by the end of the season. No weeds, no soil disruption. And so I view our plastic culture year as a major soil building year in our rotation. And then we'll... Uh, pull the plastic and the drip tape the following spring and let the clover grow up several times, mow it, let it grow, mow it, let it grow, and then we'll spade that whole field under and cover crop it for the year. And um, I feel like we're building a lot of soil with those crops in that year. And then the balance of our production is in row crops, and we do crops that you know do really well with hilling, like potatoes, leeks, uh, you know, a lot of our larger brassicas, kale, all that stuff we do in 30-inch rows pretty conventionally, except we have this funny uh, machine that we uh, 
built called the Crop Hopper, which is a zero-turn lawnmower with a spin weeder belly-mounted on parallel linkages. And you, you can move the spin weeder up and down and side to side with your hands, and you're steering the tractor with foot pedals that actuate the, um, right. the zero-turn mower transmission. So that's, that's a whole other funny thing that has had varying degrees of success. I've been working on that for years. <laughs> but at the end of the day, it's just 30-inch spacing row cropping where we mechanically weed and till. And that bare soil production, that's that's integrated in with your plasticulture production, but that that rotation doesn't overlap physically with that one and a half acres of of salad and short-term roots beds. Yeah, that 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 hundred eight that hundred acre high value crop thing is just in one field and it's just sitting there. So far we haven't felt a need to rotate out of it. I have considered expanding that into some of our other rotation. So far, there's been no disease issues, and the fertility has been okay. Um, I'm going to change compost if I have to to get out of the potassium thing that I'm getting here, where I'm getting excessive potassium. But I think we're going to be okay. I, I think I can just, I hope I can manage that. And then um, if I have to, I'll, I'll set that up into the rotation, which would be a lot of extra work. You started to say before I interrupted you and, and wanted to get some clarity on that rotation that you are also doing some hoop house production. Yeah, yeah. So we uh, we have tunnels, field tunnels that are on rebar foundations. They're 300 feet long and they're either 20 or 16 feet wide. And we've been playing with, you know, cat mobile caterpillar tunnels for years. And now we're at a system where we have four rows of rebar that gives us three sites. So there's site A, B, and C. The rebar is permanently installed with a thin strip of landscape fabric that the rebar skewers through so there's no weeds around our foundation posts. And we can just move the hoops side to side and use that. It's, you know, some sort of protected culture is so advantageous in a climate like ours where June often feels like the end of winter. <laughs> you know, we just don't get to heat in the spring because we're literally a few hundred miles south of icebergs. So the ocean's so cold here in, in April and May that it's just, it's just nothing wants to grow. So, uh, you know, yet there's lots of sun. So the simplest of greenhouses just are such a big hit here. So we have, we have the, a field that is, is our hoop house field that we've just, do those rotations where we either have cover crop or, you know, fall, fall, winter crops or spring crops growing, you know, spring, summer crops growing. We're, you know, flipping these hoop houses around. And then we also have a large heated greenhouse that's uh, 32 by 144 feet that we just put up that has a climate battery in it, which is uh, a novel way to heat a greenhouse, which is uh, there's three modules that are uh, 15-inch culverts on either side of this 30-foot 30 uh, 30 square hole, and there's four-inch thick sewer pipe connecting the two culverts, and that big fan sucks air in from the top of the greenhouse through all these buried uh, sewer pipes, pumping heat into the ground, and then putting out you know cooler air back into the greenhouse during the day, and then at night the fans turn on and suck the cooler greenhouse air through 
this heated soil, releasing all that soil heat into the greenhouse. Oh, we just built that, and we'll see we'll see how that works. We have uh, tomatoes, peppers, and eggplants that are just coming up in our seedling greenhouse, and we're planning on transplanting them out into this greenhouse around the beginning of March. So we'll see if that gives us the early warm season crops we're hoping to get without a big fuel bill. So, and that, and then we also crop greens through the winter and that has to be. I was just going to ask you if that actually works. And, and I guess the answer is we don't know yet. We don't know yet. I just, we just got it finally wired up together uh, about a week ago. <laughs> I have seen other farmers are just playing with this too. And there was a fellow in Pennsylvania who posted that he had was um, one degree Fahrenheit outside, and he was able to maintain 19 or 20 degrees Fahrenheit inside, which would be the difference between, you know, and if you added maybe a little supplementary heat, that would be the difference between keeping greens going or not in a greenhouse. It, I, think, I think it will work really well uh, going into the spring or warm season crops. I am also going to have a forest hot air oil burning furnace in there for backup. But I think we get an awful lot of sun that we waste in you know late March, early April, that we could store a lot of heat and just keep those crops growing how they want to grow, you know, without letting our temperature get below 50 degrees, 55 degrees at night. I farmed for a couple of years on Mount Desert Island in, in Maine, which is really you know, pretty much exactly parallel to you guys and just due west from where you are. And it was remarkably sunny there in the wintertime. And that was something that, that, that really struck me when I moved back to the Midwest was just how many gray, cloudy days that we have. And the temperature profile a lot of times isn't all that different than what we were experiencing on that hill time, on that hilltop in the, on the island in Maine. But but the difference was that we actually had sun. And I assume that's the same for you guys in the wintertime. I, I think it is. They, it's sort of like this weird secret thing. And yeah, we, we actually have, re, like it's a beautiful sunny day right now. There's puffy clouds in the sky and blue sky. So yeah, I don't know. We, uh, we, we do have a fair bit of solar potential here. It's a fun thing to explore. We're also uh, installing a compost heater, which is uh, another wacky experiment, which is a pile of wood chips and manure, blood meal, whatever mixture will be, but mostly wood chips, 20-foot diameter, 10-foot high circle with pipes circulated through it, and then just a circulating pump off of an old uh, uh, oil, you know, hot water boiler. And then we have a uh, tax pipe laid in between our layers of earth tubes in our climate battery modules. So we'll be pumping hot water into the soil to sort of turbocharge the system. And um, we'll see how that works. From what I understand, a, a compost pile 20 feet across, 10 feet high, can produce 40,000 BTU an hour for a year at a time. Wow. If we put 40,000 BTU into our soil starting you know, you, we might build it in September, let it come up to temperature for a month, turn it on October 1st, and then we'd have millions and millions and millions of BTUs to draw on through the winter and then maybe turn it off, you know, like crop our greens until about now and then turn it off, let it, you know, let the compost pile heat up again and then turn it back on after a week. 
and then start banking heat for our tomato crop coming up. Or actually, what I meant turn it off is actually we turn off the climate battery fan so that we're not drawing that heat out. And then the, no, we'd sort of bank heat, getting ready to plant our tomatoes. That's a lot of infrastructure that you've put into place there. That can't be cheap. No, we've, <laughs> we've definitely been putting a lot of our earnings back into the farm for the last years. And, and something I'd like to talk about is I'd really like to talk about our labor management. I think that's super interesting and sort of how we've done that. So yeah, so we have an off-farm job too that in farming, <laughs> compared to farming income pays fairly well and gives us the latitude to invest a lot into the farm. And um, actually the climate battery, we had uh, really dear customers invest in that. So we actually, uh, almost all the climate battery was paid for by climate, but by uh, customers. Do here is actually take a break, get a quick word from a couple of sponsors. When we come back, I want to talk to you really quickly about the, the mobile high tunnels that you've got. And then you said employees and, and this off farm job. We're going to take that break. We'll be right back with David Greenberg from Abundant Acres in Nova Scotia. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Local Food Marketplace. Are you trying to scale up without the right systems? Instead of juggling email and text orders, spreadsheets for harvesting and packing and delivery, and a separate invoicing system, Local Food Marketplace's software platform will help your farm automate these tasks and decrease errors with its fully integrated system for online orders, inventory management, order packing, invoicing, and payment processing. Easily configure the system for managing multiple sales channels customer types, price levels, and delivery routes. The platform also offers lot number traceability and an option to collaboratively sell products with other producers. Contact them via their website, localfoodmarketplace.com, to schedule a free consultation on how Local Food Marketplace can help you efficiently manage customer orders from packing house to your customer's doorstep. The podcast is also brought to you by Haas Tools, the complete solution for all your market farming tools and supplies. Keep rows weed-free with their time-tested American-made wheel hose and the best wheel hoe attachments. Their precision seeders have a proven seed plate design for planting a wide variety of seeds. And you can grow the best transplants with their heavy-duty PropTech seed trays and keep your crops healthy with their drip irrigation and fertilizer injection systems. Haas also provides a comprehensive selection of conventional and OMRI-certified pest control products at the most affordable prices free shipping, and outstanding customer service. Shop online or request a free catalog at haastools.com. And we're back with David Greenberg from Abundant Acres in Nova Scotia. So David, those hoop houses, the, the ones that have the rebar foundation, that's, that's really interesting to me. And I've got the impression that you're building those yourself. I started building them myself. I, I started out, there's a really neat guy, Todd Hanley in Oklahoma who I found on the internet and he had plans for fabricating your own mobile hoop houses. So I started with his system and then I gave a presentation on them at a greenhouse conference and a greenhouse manufacturer liked the idea and started building them. Then we had them made out of better materials as cheap as I, almost as cheap as I could buy materials here. So I started using his stuff. That's uh, been good. And then we've kind of kept in touch over the years and kept, refining and changing the degree uh, um, the design and that was kind of set on a design that we both really like which is a 16 foot wide gothic arch shaped high tunnel that's made out of uh, one by two 
feel and it's really light. It's easy to move. The one by two profile fits more forgivingly on the uh, rebar than the one by one I used to use, which would kind of get jammed up on the rebar if the rebar wasn't at just the right angle. Right. This way with that rectangular slot, it just pops right on. And sort of the, the key secret ingredient to our high tunnels is we have this very simple custom fabricated bracket that's just a piece of one eighth inch galvanized steel that has a three quarter inch hole that fits over the rebar and a smaller hole, probably a quarter inch hole that the carabiner fits onto. And you slip that on over the rebar and you carabiner your uh, twine that you lace the plastic on. And that just locks onto the rebar really nicely. The harder you pull on your twine, the more that bracket sort of kinks onto the rebar and won't let loose. And then the other secret thing that we're doing is we're making a little pad underneath each hoop so the hoop can't jam into the ground. I find with these uh, rebar foundation hoops sitting on rebar greenhouses that they'll kind of push into the soil, especially when it's wet and muddy. And, you know, if it goes down a few inches on each side, you could lose six inches of headroom, but also more importantly, your ropes will keep loosening. So we had this uh, corrugated plastic we got at a dump. Uh, you could also use uh, plywood or even a piece of two by four, just something to keep that, um, that, that hoop from working down into the soil. And then using strips of landscape fabric along the, along the rebar is really nice too. Something to give it a little bit of flotation and then a little bit of weed control. Yeah, just a little bit of weed control, a little bit of flotation. We've stopped this year. We won't be growing tomatoes or peppers outside. We grow them all in the, in the hoop house. And, um, you know, we're getting awesome production and super cheap. And then having it mobile, of course, is great. You know, we, we grow our tomatoes and peppers. And we can keep harvesting them into November. And then at the same time, we're growing beautiful winter crops next, next to it. When they finally get killed by the frost, we just cut everything down. And, you know, me and two employees, we can move an entire house in a day, which is almost 5,000 square feet of growing space. They're really good in the wind. They're really cheap to buy. It's just a flexible, attainable system. You know, I'd say one drawback to them is they're hard to ventilate compared to something with roll-up sides. Right. And the way we manage that is we spend some time in the spring and the fall ventilating them, especially in the spring. And then once, once the settled warm weather comes, we ventilate them. We just roll up the sides and we keep them rolled up. Even on cool nights where we probably should drop them, we don't. And we're still getting such good production that I figure, okay, that's good enough. I'd love to figure out a way to have a mobile house that has automatic ventilation. That would be great. An inexpensive mobile house that has. Yes, that's right. You could get like a Remal Rolling Thunder at however many dollars a square foot. These houses cost around a dollar square foot Canadian delivered soup to nuts. And who's the manufacturer on that? I don't think you mentioned that name. No, it's a multi-shelter solution in uh, Palmerston, Ontario. And they do ship to the state. Um, so you said you wanted to talk about employees. Yeah. We took, it's funny, I, I, I saw, I, re, I heard a podcast of yours from uh, Chris at Two Onion Farm, where, uh, you know, I just loved that podcast, by the way, it was such a great one. And he talked about delegation. And when I heard him talk about delegation, I was like, ah, someone else is doing what we're doing. We just take it to a, an extreme. What we do is we give each of our four main employees a field that they're responsible for. And we do a careful crop plan in the winter, usually before they show up, give them the crop plan, 
and I say, okay, this is your field. You're in charge of whatever it might be. Let's say plastic culture is one, hoop houses and tubing production is another, the front field where we do the high value crops with the tarps is another, and then row cropping is another. And we choose our employees and fit them to what they're interested in and what they really want to learn about. And we just say, okay, let's just make pretend you are farming and this is your farm and you have to do everything, everything. So they are responsible for all the seeding, managing the weeding, knowing crops are in the field when we're discussing what we're going to put in our CSA boxes or bring to market. Everything about that field they're responsible for. And then I just kind of buzz around helping people and discussing things and hoping to catch inexperienced mistakes they make before it ends up costing us. And this system has worked so well. I'm just thrilled with it. And it's not without its challenges, but it, it seems to motivate people in a way that I just, it, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. Like for instance, one year, deer got into our row crop field and this young man, he's 21 years old and he looks at me with wide eyes. Deer have made it into my field and they've eaten three cabbage plants. And he rallied his other friends who were working on the farm. And by 10.30 that night, a deer fence was up. <laughs> and I'm just like, my wife and I are just like, this is amazing. And they strung deer fence up. They baited it with peanut butter and tinfoil. I said to him, you know, if you get a deer fence up right away, they'll, they'll, they'll get the message. But if they get used to it, we might have a real problem on our hands. I was expecting him to get it done within a few days. And they worked by headlamp and it was done. And I didn't have to work to motivate them. I didn't have to say much. I just gave him a little touch of information and he ran with it because he wasn't going to lose all of his crops. And, you know, I, I tell people it's really important to irrigate the spinach during a dry spell. And, you know, I'll see them running out to the field during the lunch break and turning their sprinkler on because they want to grow spinach and have it at market in the middle of August. So they've really got a sense of ownership over the portion of the farm yeah. that they're responsible for. Totally. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, it's, it's, it takes a lot of letting go. Uh, there's a lot of training that has to go into it. Like, um, you know, we'll get people who don't have experience with tractors and have to show them how to use the bucket loader and how to load compost and how to use our field equipment and do all this stuff that a lot of farms just don't delegate. And we delegate it all. And people feel like they're getting a lot of value from that. And they, so far, have reciprocated beautifully. So do um, you have, yeah. I mean, I just, I think of myself as, as a young farmer. And I certainly went through an evolution from the, the first farm that I worked on to the fourth farm that I worked on. But I certainly had, I don't know, was he, I mean, as a young man, and I think this is true of a lot of young people, I was kind of cocky. I felt like I knew it all. I didn't really want to listen to what anybody else had to say. Um, I was oftentimes, I was oftentimes careless and distracted. Um, you know, I, I just, I, I hear you talking about this and it kind of gives me the heebie-jeebies. Right. Well, we have, I mean, there is some of that. Like sometimes people make mistakes and it, it hurts. Um, we do try to carefully hire people who are not too headstrong. You know, it's like if you're going to give them an inch, they might take a mile. So we do have to find people who have a cooperative spirit, 
who appreciate it, who have clear expectations. We've, we've run into trouble with people who wanted more direction than they got and felt sort of lonely and isolated out there in their own field. Um, and then something that seems to be really important is that we get people who want to work as a team. So like at work meeting, it's typical for the person who's doing the hoop house people to say, okay, I'm the hoop house person. I need to get the trellis, trellising done on the tomatoes. And then the central person will say, well, I have a ton of compost to spread. And the other person will say, well, I have, you know, seedlings to put out. I have to plant the leaks. And then I might sort of jump in and say, okay, well, why don't we trellis the tomatoes in the morning before the hoop house gets too hot? And then we'll spread compost. And then at the end of the day, we'll plant the leaks so that they're not planted in the heat of the day. And then we'll all help each other. And the tomato trellising person will actually be looking over their shoulder and making sure everyone's doing it the way they want it done. And the compost person and the leaf transplanter are the same way. So they kind of get to be the crew boss and they're working for each other, which creates like this really nice sort of positive peer pressure. You know, come on, get my work done and then I'll get your work done. And so far it's worked really well. And we have really good retention too. Like this year, we have all returning employees. Wow. Which is really nice. So that first year, how does that tomato person know how to get the tomato trellising done? I, I show them. Okay. I mean, well, and oftentimes, like, like what, what I'll do is I'll hire someone who's worked on a farm that did really good greenhouse tomatoes. Like in 2016, I hired a young woman who had two years of greenhouse tomato growing under her belt. And I was like, oh, goody, do you want to do the greenhouse tomatoes? And her eyes like light up and she's like, yes, I want to do it right. And I want to be in control and I'm about to buy a farm and I want to do a dry run on this because I really want to grow greenhouse tomatoes. And I'm like, great, go for it. And she taught me how to grow greenhouse tomatoes better. And they were amazing. She grew, you know, more tomatoes than I've ever grown. And now she owns her own farm and, you know, there you go. So that happens a lot. So I'll, I'll choose someone that way. And then it's actually just a, a, a benefit to us. Um, sometimes I choose someone to do a job where I know I'm going to have to work with them a lot. And that works to a greater or lesser degree, depending on the, the relationship we can get going and how focused I can be on being a good mentor. And you know, just that, that's, it's never perfect, but neither is it perfect having unex, inexperienced people who it's hard to delegate to, and they're just kind of disengaged and don't feel motivated, you know? So, and I think there's a certain self-selection too. Like when you advertise a job where you're going to be in charge of a field, I think that's a way for us to attract people who are later in their cycle of farm apprenticeships. So we get to kind of jump to the top of the queue and we get people applying who are like, I really like the way you manage your farm. I really want to work for you. I really want to, experience running my own farm because I want to have a farm in a few years. So I want to come stay with you and do this. But I was just going to say, to make this work, especially in an isolated rural area like us, we had to build cabins so that we can advertise nationally and have people come from all over. Because I don't think this would necessarily work if we were only pulling on local Nova Scotians because we really need to get those people who are about to have their own farm and want that kind of responsibility. You know, it's, there's, there's a lot to it. Like we have a separate house for employees with a kitchen and a bathroom and a living area. And then we also have 
individual cabins for each live-on employee so they have their own personal space. So it's been a lot of investment to get, you know, to get ourselves set up to do that. How are you compensating your farm labor? I mean, you talked about the housing, but, but what else is there? Well, if you were asking me about how this apprenticeship, you know, teaching people so much and giving them so much responsibility. One of the things we've had to struggle with to get right is how we pay people. Um, we started off, we were paying everyone by the hour. And we had some people who really wanted to farm and they're like, I really appreciate it. I really appreciate being paid fairly, but I want more training. And I'm like, well, I can't give you the kind of training you want. Like, i.e. telling you, teaching you how to weld with my equipment and sitting there and showing you how to do farm welding or training you on how to use the bucket loader carefully and safely. I can't afford to do that while I'm paying you 12 bucks an hour. That's just not going to happen. So then we started doing a minimum wage on salary with a bonus at the end. And that has drawbacks, but it seems to allow people to not sort of watch the clock and just feel it's interesting. It's not so much that, that we can't, there, there is a sense of like that we can then afford to train people, but it's also that people don't feel guilty. Like if someone's on the clock, and they're struggling to use a bucket loader to load compost for the first time in their life, they're going to get really flustered and scared that me and Jen are going to be angry at them for wasting our labor. But if it's five o'clock and they've been working all day and they're on salary and they struggle using a bucket loader for the first time in their life or learning how to back up a trailer, you know, it's often equipment related things or learning how to weld and they work till seven o'clock at night doing it, they're relaxed and they just know they're okay. That's funny. My dad, who has a lot of experience in business, said managers are always on salary for that reason. So this year, what we do is we pay minimum wage, salary, and then once Jen and I make our income goal, we pay out up to a $5,000 bonus per employee. So it works out that um, they'd get free room and board and something like $18,500 for uh, 35 weeks of work. And, um, and that seems to be so far the best, uh, you know, the best solution we can find to that problem. Or to that, you know, so I've always found with employees, I shouldn't say I've always found because I was really a lousy employee manager for a long time before I got good at it. But I found that it was really important to set expectations to make sure that people knew what outcomes they were supposed to create at work. You know, whether that was you need to be bunching 60 bunches of kale an hour or, or the spinach that we harvest out of the greenhouse has to be weed free. Or I can imagine in your situation, you know, the tomatoes, when you trellis them need to end up looking like this. It seems like you must be communicating a lot of fairly high level information to people about what your expectations are. How do you go about doing that? I walk around and talk. We do field tours where I'll do like, we're trying to implement this on a really regimented basis where I'll, you know, on a set weekly schedule, everyone will have a certain amount of time with me and Jen where we go over everything. Um, I find a field plan is crucial. If our plan is really accurate and we have everything on Google drive, so everyone can have it and update it and see it whenever they need to. 
So people know what they need to feed and what they need to do. And in the plan, we have all our, every detail we can imagine about the crop production, you know, what compost is used, when the ground has to be worked, what implement is used to work the ground, you know, every little, how many runs of drip tape go underneath that layer of mulch or, you know, every little detail we can think of, we write down. And then it's just a question of just, just being present with people and looking at things and also accepting that things are not always going to be done to the highest level. Even though, you know, the crops look great year after year and we're making money and, you know, it, it's working, but still there's going to be mistakes made. And that's just, that's just part of that trade-off. You know, like I think all year, this last year, we didn't have one person show up five minutes late all year. Like every single person showed up for every single shift except a few incidents or someone having a cold. You know, what's that worth? And then almost everyone comes back. You know, we had a few employees who didn't come back. And then we had uh, an employee who came back from the year before. So this 2018, we have a fully returning crew. You know, what? <sighs> that's worth a lot of little small mistakes. And I make mistakes. That was the thing from the two onion farm episode where you're talking about someone on the feeder and how that person is trusted to feed and they're not going to screw up because they're trusted with this job where he was very humbly uh, saying, you know, and I'm sitting here thinking of 13 other things I have to do at once. And I'm more likely to space out on that feeder. Right. And you were kind of incredulous when Chris was saying it. And I was listening to that going, yes, like, amen, brother, that's it right there. And, um, you know, that, that just has been my experience totally. And, um, and we delegate so much. Like I even delegate most of the crop planning. We have an employee who's coming back for his fifth year this year. And he does a lot of the crop planning. He's really good at it. And I just go over it with him and sort of just check and discuss. And then he does the bulk of the work. And, you know, he did the whole crop plan this year in about four days of work, five days of work. And then I kind of look at that and do the seed orders, do certain things that I like to do. Um, so, yeah, I really believe in trusting young people and giving them a chance to store. You know, and that's like for me what the farming is all about. Like, it's all about the fabric of society. It's about believing in people. It's about creating space where people can feel healthy and strong. And that's what energizes us. Um, we've also had a lot of people come to the farm in places of crisis. And, you know, talk about accepting less than optimal work. Like, we had one person show up at our farm who's been sort of in his apartment pretty much nonstop for two years, having like debilitating anxiety. And he was a customer of ours. He showed up uh, with his wife and spent almost a whole season with us. And it was hard, but he made it, got over his debilitating anxiety, came back to the city. Started working full time. He's doing great now. They have a baby. It's a turned around life. And yeah, we uh, definitely had to exercise some patience for that one. But, you know, that's to me why I find that's what I love. So, and I think that our customers know that too. We give away all our food that we don't sell. And, um, you know, that we don't promote that we do it. We don't blow our own horn, but it, it gets out every now and then. And we got customers from it. You know, we uh, we were giving away a lot of food to Syrian refugees. And this woman who has a really 
well-known nonprofit in the community took a picture of it and put it on Facebook and her 4,000 followers all saw it. And suddenly we had all these CSA shares coming in. That's kind of where we're at. And, and, and that, so that radical delegation is just an extension of that philosophy. Thank you for sharing that. David, you also mentioned that you have an off-farm job. But it's a farming job, right? It is. It's, it's really cool. So um, we work for this community called the Sisters of St. Martha who are a very large, established Catholic religious order in a, a town in northern Nova Scotia, two and a half hours from us, called Anaganish, which is a small college town and also sort of the sort of center of Catholic culture in northern Nova Scotia. It's like the archdiocese town and the, the university is St. Francis Xavier, which is a Catholic university. And, um, and so these sisters are very prominent in their region. And they have a 350-acre property right in town. And there's very few women who are entering into religious life. So the average age in the convent is probably 80 years old or something. And they have this beautiful farm property. And they hired Jen and I, I guess five years ago now, to turn it into an ecological farming training center. So we have, now we have two acres of land greenhouses, hoop houses, DCF, walk-in cooler, wash pack room, everything you need to be a beginning market gardener. And we bring people in, give them basic training, go over the crop planning a lot with them. That seems to be what these people need a lot. And then just say, go at it. You know, Take a section of the field, plant crops, do your best to sell them, enjoy. And so far, it's been fantastic. We have had, I think, all but one of our graduates to see their farming for themselves or in the process of setting up a farm. And, um, yeah, people just, again, it's like that, that thing of just giving people trust and autonomy with solid information and, and guidance. And people, they learn something. It's, it's this like intangible, just that, that sense of just the confidence it takes to just get up in the morning and just start working and making decisions, learning from your mistakes, going to bed, waking up in the morning, do it again, over and over and over and over again. And before you know it, you know, you're a farmer. And uh, we certainly don't do it as a replacement for working on other farms or studying the art of agriculture, but we sort of see it as a stepping stone between someone who's been working on other farms and someone who wants to start their own farm. Kind of like a dry run where you can just soft start your agricultural career. And so far it's worked really well that way. But having a part-time job that far away from the farm, I mean, I guess that's, that's a function of the radical delegation that you're doing, right? Yeah, totally. So, and it's hard. Like that is hard. There's many days in the middle of a spring planting day where I'm up at St. Martha and my cell phone is ringing, you know, at least once an hour. And people are like, on the crop plan, it says that broccoli is supposed to be at one and a half feet per bed. But didn't you say at work meeting, it's supposed to be one foot per bed in the spring or something? And I'm like, oh, yes, yes, that's a mistake. Put it at one foot. Good one. Good one. Or 
you know, that kind of stuff. Or I can't get the such and such to start. And I'm like, oh, did you pull the choke? And they're like, oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot. So a lot of that kind of stuff happens. And it's a tremendous frustration and inefficiency. But we're paid well for the job. The job's meaningful. We're committed to it. And it also, when we come back, you know, I'll come back from being gone all day. And the crew is often really stoked and proud of all the work they did while I was gone. And again, that's that whole thing of trust. You know, Mark Twain said the best way to find out if you can trust someone is to trust them. So, you know, we just have a whole employee attitude based on I trust you, I trust you, I trust you. And I'm going to walk around and hold you accountable and see what you're doing and try to lay out really clear goals. Um, we use a lot of um, things I picked up reading about Paul Arnold, Paul and Cindy Arnold's ideas from the 90s when I first started farming about benchmarks of how many dollars an hour you harvest, how many dollars per square foot or acre, you know, that, those kind of benchmarks. So like on our farm, you know, they know that if we're not harvesting $80 an hour of produce, we're in trouble, for instance, or like in my front field, each bed has to yield $500 per crop, and we want to double crop, you know, so we want to hit, you know, roughly $1,000 per bed per year, you know, those kind of things, and they know that, and we talk about it, and in the beginning of the spring, we'll do a harvest, and I'll total up the value of the harvest, and I'll total up how many hours went into it, and I'll be like, look, we're at $48 an hour. If we continue at this speed all year, I will be bankrupt, you know, <laughs> inferring, or you will be fired, <laughs> you know, so it's not like all lovey-dovey. And I'm like, so basically either people are moving too slow, they're being too fussy, or there's a combination of the two, or you're being fussy in the wrong way. Then I'll be like, okay, like, let's go over bunching these hot dry turnips together. And, you know, and I'll kind of like set the pace and people will be like, Oh, I see. I'm like inspecting each one way too much. And I'm like, yeah, it's better just, you know, I know there's no maggot in these turnips. You don't have to look. The last farm you were on might have had bad maggots. These have been real covered since the day they're planted. Just go. And I like, you know, kind of give them the context. And the people are like, oh, we didn't use real cover on last at the last farm. I'm like, yeah, well, we do here. And there's no maggots. You don't have to look at each one. And suddenly they're harvesting turnips three times faster. Correcting people is one of the hardest things to do, I found, you know, to, to really be able to, to do it effectively. Cause so often, you know, so often we have a tendency, I think, to save that stuff up, you know? And so it really is, you're sitting down at that weekly meeting and going, you know, you guys are all lazy, slow, and stupid because we're at $48 an hour instead of 80 on the harvest. And so what the hell's going on with that? And, and it, it, it did you, did you go through a learning process when it came to correcting people? I still, I'm, I'm deep, we're deep in it and we make mistakes a lot. Um, but yes, I think we're, what we're learning is I'm a gregarious person who likes to talk a lot and I'm often telling people stuff randomly. That does not work. There's a place for structured feedback and correction in a farm like this, even more so. So we're finding, and we started doing this last year um, and we're getting more and more rigid about it. It's a weekly check-in where I go over the crop plan, we walk through the person's field, we sit down, we give them a chance to talk. So like Jen will say to the person usually, how could we be managing you better? Like how could, what, you know, tell us what's on your mind. We listen first. 
and absorb that and answer their questions. What's going on? And they often have fantastic uh, feedback that especially a lot of shyer people won't necessarily just burst out at lunch and say, the fertilizer injector that you're telling me to use is clogging all the time with the compost we're trying to put through it. It's a bad idea. You know, a lot of people just won't say that. But if you sit down and look at them in the eye and say, tell me what's going on, they'll say, you know, your compost tea injector idea isn't working for me. I'm taking way too much time dealing with it. Okay. You know, listen. And then once you've let that person say what they need to say, you can say, oh, and by the way, I've noticed, whatever, you're taking too long bunching your turnips. You know, your turnip bunching speed is, could be better. And if you make that space and the person expects it, and it, it's a, you know, there's this thing where like stress that is moderate and anticipated creates strength. So like if you work out three days a week, you won't experience that as a sort of traumatic stress. But if something suddenly happens, it's very hard to cope with. So if you have an employer, if I'm an employer who just randomly gives painful feedback, that creates a lot of jitteriness and resentment and fear in our crew. But if it's coming, I don't, you know, they know, okay, every Wednesday I meet with David and Jen and you think about it in the head and you're ready for it and you know there's going to be you know, changes that you're going to be asked to make and you're going to be able to tell them what you think, then it actually creates trust and relaxation and strength. So that's kind of where we're aiming for this year. And uh, as much as we did it last year, we had a lot more success. David, with that, we're going to turn to our lightning round. But first, we're going to get a quick word from one more sponsor. Perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Vermont Compost Company. When you talk to Carl Hammer, the company founder, he'll remind you that potting soil is a set of promises about a product that has to do a really hard job, produce a healthy plant in a restricted media volume. When I started farming, I focused on the cheapest ingredients I could get so that I could make my own potting soil. But as my farm grew and as I saw the challenges we were having getting great plants out of the greenhouse, I gave it a second look. And I came to the fairly obvious conclusion that success in the greenhouse depends on the success of the plants that are growing there, and that just like in the rest of farming, that success rests on the stuff that the plant is growing in. The cost of your potting soil isn't insignificant, but it's a small cost relative to plant material, heat, and labor. If that media fails, the rest of the enterprise is a sunk cost. So get media that works year after year after year and grow some great transplants. VermontCompost.com So David, what's your favorite tool on the farm? I would say without hesitation, it is silage tarp. I have a stupid silage tarp question because I feel like this whole thing has come along since I got out of farming. Where do you actually go to get silage tarp? I get it from farm supply stores that specialize in servicing dairy farms. They've got the best prices. So um, I shop around and uh, where we do our farm apprenticeship program in Antigonish, there's almost exclusively dairy farms there. And so every feed store is a major silage tarp seller. And so I just call up, call up, call up, found the cheapest one and get it there. And I find too, like if I was buying a whole bunch at once, I would pre-book it. I'd order it at this time of year. And you can usually save, you know, five or 10% cause they're bringing it in on their major truckload. Right. And, um, you know, we repair it with tuck tape and we get, some damage to it over the winter where rodents will sometimes chew through it because they're kind of eating the worms that are underneath the tarp and then they want to get in and out so they'll 
chew a path in and out of it, like bowls will chew it. Right. And I just wait for a sunny, dry day, come along with some uh, sheathing tape. We call it tuck tape in Canada. It's this red, super sticky tape. It's like way better than duct, duct tape. So we use this red tuck tape and it's as good as new. Done. Right. So uh, we, we can keep it going for years and years. And um, the cost per square foot, the weed control, just it's just the thing. And then we, we do something too that's kind of cool. We sandbag it along the edge. And then in the middle rows, I'll take a shovel and I'll dig a little divot. If there's like a slight, there's a slight slope to our field, like maybe a 1% slope. And I'll dig a divot out from the middle of the path and put that soil on the downhill side of that divot to make like a little dam. Okay. And then when it rains, or if I can even irrigate it, it will make a several hundred pound pond of water in the middle of the tarp that will hold the tarp down so tight that it will not move in the rain. Huh. And then when it comes to unrolling it, I just take the sandbags off the middle and we'll get two or three people to just roll the tarp off and that water will kind of like learn how to make a divot that's not too heavy. And then we can just kind of roll the tarp downhill, swish, swish that all off, just you know, take a shovel or a rake or something and just fill in that divot again. And we just saved a lot of sandbag carrying. And then by having full coverage of the whole field, I don't have to move sandbags around. It's not moving the tarp isn't that bad, but moving the sandbags gets pulled. Right. So by having enough tarp and sandbags to cover the whole field, we just, you know, take the sandbags off into a pile, roll up the tarp, you know, leave it in one path. And then what we'll do too, like as we multi-crop the field, we'll, you know, pull the tarp to the left, which will kind of make a really clean edge to that part of that section, you know, kill all the weeds. And then the next time we'll roll it to the right and slide the weeds on the other side. And, um, you know, we try to keep it really well mowed and tidy all around it. It's sometimes hard to mow right up the tarp. Um, so by flipping the tarps one way and then the other, we kind of keep our field edges really tidy. And, um, you know, I feel like the high value crops are where the profit is on the farm. You know, I mean, people like Richard Wiswell and, you know, many people have figured that out. And I think all of us have figured it out who stay in business is that we're making a lot more money on cilantro than we are in winter squash. And I grow all those crops to have what the customer wants. And then I never, ever want to lose a sale on those high value crops. I want to have them year round as much as possible. You know, I want to be the cilantro guy in my market. Yeah. And having a bomb proof system, you know, where it can be like, we get a lot of rain here, right? And it could be raining and raining and raining and I can uncover a bed and plant you know, as long as it's not a thunderstorm, I can pretty much plant whatever I want to. And that combination of the peat moss and the tarp just pretty much takes wet weather out as an excuse. We're not getting a planting done on time. That's you know, we're planting, you know, it's just, there's just no excuse. So we can have perfect arugula week after week unless we have a flea beetle problem or something. You know, perfect bunching greens, perfect salad mix, spinach, radishes, hot rice, just, just solid. Such a powerful tool. I mean, man, I mean, that's just, you know, to, to pull out over $100,000 out of an acre and a half with, you know, over probably 60 or 70% of our labor in that field is harvest. It's just so profitable. And, um, you know, and then, and then we do things that aren't possible, like growing 
potatoes and things like that that I love doing. And it gives the experience to the crew. And of course, our customers love eating really good root crop. There's some money to be made in it, but to keep that, you know, I know what my profit center is. It's a front field and it's a greenhouse crop. And, um, you know, so I just really take care of those profit centers as, you know, I don't, I don't starve them out. It's kind of like Brian Bates was talking about, like he said something like, if it isn't salad mix, bees or greenhouses, they don't get money or something. Or my, yeah. You know, he had said this thing, like there's three things that it's like, if I don't feed, you know, if it's not those things, they're not getting fed until those things are maxed. And that's how I kind of feel about that field. So like dropping $20,000 of compost on it. And like, if that's what it takes to grow spinach all year, go for it. We're in. And like, it's funny, like with that compost, two beds of spinach pays for a whole truckload of compost. Before that compost application, we couldn't really grow spinach. And I'm often making close to $2,000 on two beds of spinach, which then buys a 50-yard load of compost. I had invited you and your wife, Jen, to be on the show. And Jen declined, passed it off to you. So I'd like to ask you, what's Jen's superpower on the farm? Oh, man, there are multitudes. But Jen is the CEO. So her superpower is keeping us financially solvent. And, you know, she basically runs the farm. She does all our social media. She does all our customer care. She's sort of a very nurturing and calm, loving personality on our crew. You know, she's just, she's really the rock. And she's the one who never gives up. She says, like, if she, her totem animal, if she was an animal, would be a terrier. She's like super <laughs> quiet, gentle person who's just like fierce. And I tend to go up and down more. And she's just this steady rock. Like we are going to farm. We are going to succeed. We're not going to quit. We're going to keep investing in the farm. We're going to keep doing what we believe in. And, uh, and she manages all the money impeccably, does all the taxes, all the payroll, all that stuff. And uh, it's a real tension and sadness on our farm that she's stuck in the office so much. So we're always trying to figure out ways to like spring her free and get more and more efficient with our bookkeeping so that she's not, you know, saddled with all that. It's hard. Uh, she also does the chickens. We have free range chickens and she loves doing that. And, um, you know, tries to get out and harvest with the crew as much as possible. And we're trying to make sure she does that more and more. And she's not, she's not a woman of many words. I asked her repeatedly if she wanted to take part in the program. Now I'll pass it off to you. And finally, David, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? It would be to pay more close attention to what established successful farmers are doing and not be such a creative iconoclast, but instead do something that's proven that works learn it, and then try to improve after you've learned the baseline best accepted practice. David, thank you so much for being part of the Farmer to Farmer podcast today. Thank you, Chris. It's been a pleasure. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this episode 157 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast, you can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Greenberg. That's G-R-E-E-N-B-E-R-G. The transcript for this episode is brought to you by Earth Tools, offering the most complete selection of walk-behind farming equipment and high-quality garden tools in North America. And by Osborne Quality Seeds, a dedicated partner for growers. 
Visit OsborneSeed.com for high-quality seed, industry-leading customer service, and fast order fulfillment. Additional funding for transcripts is provided by North Central SARE, providing grants and education to advance innovations in sustainable agriculture. You know, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show. We have a suggestions form at FarmerFarmerPodcast.com. I wouldn't have known about David if two of you hadn't said something. And I'll do my best to get the people that you want to hear from on the show. You can support the show directly by going to FarmerToFarmerPodcast.com slash donate. I am working to make the best farming podcast in the world, and you can help right there. You know, the other way you can help is head on over to iTunes, leave us a review, especially if you enjoy the show, or talk to us in the show notes or tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. And hey, when you talk to our sponsors, please let them know how much you appreciate their support of a resource you value. This really matters. You can get the show notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast in your inbox every Thursday morning by signing up for my email newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running. <laughs>